Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. A very warm welcome to the London School of Economics for this online public event. I'm your chair for today. My name is Dr. Shalini Grover and I'm an anthropologist and a research fellow at the International Inequalities Institute, which we call the III. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome today Professor Rissal Perineus, um, Lina Abu Habib, and Dr. Stefan Hertog, a stellar panel of experts on the Middle East, one that we've eagerly awaited for. Our guest speaker today, Rissal, is the Florence Eveline Professor of Sociology, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Southern California and currently a visiting professor at Princeton. Rizal needs no introduction. She's truly one of the pioneers of global care chain ethnography. Her first book, Servants of Globalization, Migration and Domestic Work, published in 2001 by Stanford University Press, is a landmark study that is now in a second edition. It is a deeply theoretically sophisticated analysis of racialized women from the spatial location of the Philippines to where the spatial location becomes global, such as Rome and LA. After Servants of Globalization, Rizal has also published four other monographs, including the one we'll discuss today. Rizal's work also extends to many other frontiers She's winner of the Jesse Bernard Award in recognition of scholarly work that has enlarged the horizons of sociology to encompass fully the role of women in society. So Rizal, a very warm welcome to the LSE and thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Next, we are delighted to have with us Lina Abu Habib, who is director of the Asfari Institute of Civil Society and Citizenship at the American University of Beirut. She also teaches gender courses at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and is the Gender Project Director for the AUB uh, program. She's a member of the Editorial Committee of the Gender and Development Journal published by Oxfam. Indeed, many of Lena's articles such as How the Journey Began in Beijing, to Introduction to Citizenship are all widely read in the Gender and Development Journal. Uh, So Lina, a very warm welcome and greatly appreciate your expertise today. Uh, It's a great pleasure to introduce to you Stefan Hartog, an Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at the LSE. His research interests include Gulf politics, Middle East political economy, political violence and radicalization. He's been researching the political economy of migrant labor in the GCC and is a key advisor to the ILO and the World Bank. He was lead researcher for an ILO report that provided the analytical backdrop for the liberalization of the Qatari labor sponsorship system in 2020. With uh, his rich and wide range of experience in the Middle East, we're very lucky to have Stefan, Stefan with us today. So thank you for joining. So moving on to the structure of today's public event, after Rizal's talk, our diverse panel will offer their reflections on her book. 
for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE III. This is an online event that's being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. As usual, there'll be a chance for you uh, in the Q&A to uh, ask uh, questions, to pose questions, and uh, please put your name and affiliation when you do that. We're very keen to hear from our students and LSE alumni, so please let us know if you are alumni or students. We will put a link to Rizal's book in the chat, so if you're interested, you can purchase it. Uh, and before I hand you over to Rizal, I'd very much like to thank Peter and Emma and all of you from the III for uh, impeccably developing today's public event and for all your generous support. I'm now delighted to hand, uh, hand you over to Rizal uh, for uh, her book today. Thank you, Rizal. Um, so thank, thank you um, for um, that uh, introduction and thank you to everyone <clears throat> for um, being here and um, being uh, willing to hear about my uh, most recent work, uh, which is this book, um, Unfree, on um, migrant um, domestic workers in the United Arab Emirates. So um, I'm just gonna informally um, introduce um, the book to you. And so I began this book with this question um, concerning um, or centered on the legal subjectivity of migrant domestic workers as unfree workers. And so um, according to the ILO of all labor migrants, um, the largest group are migrant domestic workers. They constitute um, according to the ILO and they estimate that about 25% of all labor uh, trafficking victims are domestic workers. And most of these domestic workers can be found um, in Asia, including in West Asia, um, including in Gulf Cooperation Council countries. And so it's the legal status of migrant domestic workers that make them particularly vulnerable to um, human trafficking, uh, which uh, by definition, it, it's very specific. It's referring basically to the transportation of a group um, from one location to another uh, for the, um, and that they are duped in that process. And then third, for the purpose of their exploitation and that exploitation could be, um, you know, slavery, servitude, forced labor. And so uh, migrant domestic workers are particularly vulnerable to forced labor, um, servitude and um, enslavement. And so, um, and this is because across the globe, uh, migrant domestic workers uh, pretty much share the same legal status of being infantilized workers. And that is usually their visa status or their legal status is contingent on their continuous employment for only one employer as a live-in worker. And they are unable to uh, easily change their jobs. So even if they face uh, an abusive situation, um, it's very hard for them to change their jobs, even if they wish to get deported. And because of this legal status, I, then, I think it's then concluded that they are likely vulnerable to 
you know, extreme abuse. And, and indeed they are. So I want to say that this legal status um, is something that people associate mostly with, you know, the MENA region, the Middle East. Um, they think of it as happening in countries like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, which is my field site. Um, but I do want to say that while this happens in, in this region, um, it's also um, mirrors their legal status in other countries. Uh, Israel, historically Canada, we could say the same for au pairs in countries like Denmark and um, in various destinations in Asia. But what makes um, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries get more attention is um, arguably the... Um, greater challenge for migrant domestic workers to change jobs. And this is because in this, in this region of the world, um, they need to secure their employer's permission in order to change jobs. So even if you're an abused domestic worker um, and you want to quit, uh, you basically have to secure permission of your employer to quit, change jobs, or even leave the country. And, um, the, and employers, admittedly, are not incentivized to, quote-unquote, free the domestic workers, and it is because they usually pay um, anywhere, you know, from, you know, $3,600 to more um, to secure the employment of a domestic worker in their home for a minimum of two years. So if this domestic worker, even if, if, even if they mistreated them, wished to quit, um, they're hard pressed to allow them to quit because they don't wanna lose that $3,600 that they paid the agency to get this domestic worker in their home. So um, I then, um, you know, focused on figuring out, well, what is, what happens? So my question really is, how do, um, how do we understand, you know, what comes out of this extremely asymmetric relationship between an employer and employee in the private space of a home that is unlikely to be regulated by the state? And that if there are labor protection of any kind, it is highly unlikely that, um, it could be enforced because there's like no regulation. So I'm not the first scholar to look into this, especially in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries or neighboring countries such as Lebanon. <clears throat> um, in the other studies that preceded mine, there is however a kind of agreement among scholars that this legal status that I just described to you is going to result in um, structural violence uh, or human trafficking or slavery. And so those are the three terms that circulate a lot among the, in the scholarship on domestic workers in the region. So while I recognize that um, these uh, vulnerabilities could occur, <clears throat> I was also like um, kind of wondering, I was, um, I felt that that was too simple of a conclusion. And indeed like my peers observed in their studies that labor conditions for domestic workers in that region 
don't necessarily result in very abusive conditions. Yet, they've opted to sort of, you know, put that, uh, sweep that under the rug um, because, and, you know, and sort of leave it as, an, you know, sort of make it out as an exception <clears throat> and saying, well, the vast, and arguing that the vast majority uh, get oppressed somehow. So I, I think that they can also make, I mean, so I'll say something about methods. I mean, I think that's very easy to conclude because many studies uh, do convenience sampling as they rely tremendously on uh, migrant shelters to identify uh, potential interviewees for their studies. So of course, you're gonna get the vast majority of domestic workers who are oppressed if you're oversampling from these migrant shelters. And so for me, um, I avoided that consciously and I was able to then get a more diverse sample of domestic workers that included those with a day off, those without a day off, those who have been working there for a long time and those who are recent arrivees. And um, they worked, the people I interviewed, they were all from the Philippines, um, and which is the majority of domestic workers in the United Arab Emirates. And um, they, the people I interviewed worked for a diverse range of employers that included Emirati, other Arabs, Indians, South Asians, um, Lebanese, uh, was a kind of a, Iranians was another big group and um, Westerners. Um, and I found um, that um, you could actually find people with not the most ideal work situations if you um, interview them, for example, um, in supermarket aisles where you'll meet people without days off and they usually shop at the same time every day. So you could do incremental interviews with them. And I also met them in public parks at like five in the morning when they were walking dogs. And so if you um, diversify like how you, if you're creative, temporarily creative, I found it out in terms of how you try to access people who otherwise would be like hidden in the home, then you need not just like kind of scream at them from like the ground floor while they're up in the basement of their, like, I mean, while they're up in the balcony of their employer's house, uh, which is what some other scholars have had to do. And so um, I wanted then to, um, you know, recognize how um, the people who are subject to these laws, who find themselves in an asymmetrical relationship vis-a-vis -vis one another, and that's the employer and the employee, I wanted to recognize them as an agentic subject and, and that I wanted to recognize that in, in this world, people respond differently to the in diverse ways to the situations that they found themselves in. And indeed, my data shows that. Um, and then I, so then I tried to figure out how my findings like make sense, right, um, theoretically. So let me like get into you know, my um, findings. And so one, one thing, so one main finding I had that there are multiple actors involved in the management of migrant domestic work and that many actors and agents are um, conscious of the asymmetrical relationship that the law uh, puts employers and domestic workers um, in relation to one another. And so those actors are like the Philippine government, the United Arab, Arabs, uh, United Arab Emirates government, um, different NGOs, you know, the ILO, um, multilateral agencies, and the employers themselves, and then agencies that, um, uh, you know, funnel the movement of domestic workers from the Philippines to different countries in the world. 
and that um, in their management of the migration of domestic workers, morals, I found, really shapes how they uh, address the inequality that um, arises, you know, that people find themselves in. And um, these morals mediate the relationship then that domestic workers and employers have with one another. And so oftentimes then when employers manage domestic workers, they've often heard in CNN about some ILO report, some Human Rights Watch report, and they either ignore that report or it's conscious in their head when they're managing this domestic worker. Um, likewise, they are informed by what um, migrant recruitment agencies have told them. A lot of times employers are, you know, unless they have, you know, they're much older, a lot of them are um, like, you know, younger employers who never employed someone. And so then they're seeking advice from people. And usually those are the um, recruitment agents on how to treat their domestic workers. And then finally, they also rely on their peers, as Pierrette Tandanusatalo showed in her book, Domestica. Um, so domestic workers also enter this space with particular um, sort of moral standards that um, they use to gauge the quality of their employment. And so for domestic workers, it's primary, primarily the Philippine government that shapes how they feel or how they think their employment conditions are. So before they leave, they have to take this seminar. And for people going to the Middle East to become domestic workers, it's three days. And during those three days, they learn about like standards such as you should make $400 a month. You should um, have eight hours of continuous rest day every 24 hours. You need to eat three meals a day. You need to, you know, you're, you're um, entitled by law to a rest day every seven, you know, per week. So they come in with those standards and then they accordingly, you know, gauge what their conditions are. And so then, um, again, so this leads to sort of the moral mediation of the labor conditions of the labor. So um, what did I find then? So what is the result of this moral mediation? I found that um, employers respond and domestic workers respond to this asymmetric relationship in multiple ways that you end up with such a diverse range of employment conditions. So you, you will meet domestic workers without a day off, those without, you know, those without a day off, those with a day off. You'll meet domestic workers whose employers bar them from um, like having access to the internet or the phone. Then you have in, in, in domestic workers who you know, have free reign to like talk to their children um, through um, you know, like a web app um, that they can then use with their headphones as they're cleaning, they're talking to their children. Um, you have employers who limit what domestic workers can eat, and you have domestic workers who find themselves being able to eat anything they want. So, um, so I found a much more diverse range of employment conditions than what I read in the literature, you know, before I did the study. 
And so um, I found generally that there are three cultures of employment in domestic work in the United Arab Emirates. And so um, you could describe these three cultures as one, there's households that um, recognize the humanity and personhood of the domestic worker. Um, Second, you have households that infantilize domestic workers. And then third, you have households that dehumanize uh, domestic workers. And so there's many ways we could measure labor conditions of domestic workers. We could measure it by looking at, you know, the, what work they do, the hours of work they have to do, whether they have a day off or not, um, whether they have access to communication or not, uh, whether they have bodily autonomy that they can just determine how to do their work or are they micromanaged, they can wear what they want or they're being told what to wear. Or, you know, it's also, you know, determined, we could also look at employment conditions by looking at the food that they eat. And so for me, what was very interesting was for domestic workers, um, they primarily measured their employment conditions based on how much food um, they have access to and what kind of food they eat. So let me now describe um, the three cultures of employment by talking about the different foods they have to eat, they could eat and they were able to eat. So we have, um, let me start with uh, employers that recognize the humanity of domestic workers. So you have employers who actually, you know, let domestic workers eat whatever they want to eat. And they usually do this by first giving them free reign in the kitchen you know, basically telling domestic workers that they can eat whatever they want, whatever they see in the kitchen, that they need not ask permission to pick up that banana, that they could just eat that banana. And then um, a second thing that they could, you know, do is give domestic workers an allowance. And so usually when they give them an allowance, it's to add to their access to the food because the employers are not necessarily buying the foods that the domestic workers prefer to eat. And then a third thing is that employers will, um, you know, oftentimes like ask domestic workers what they like to eat and give them, you know, you know, buy it when they go shopping or because the domestic worker is the one shopping for food. So then they, um, because they're the one shopping for food, it's like there's an understanding that they could just buy whatever that they want. So while that's the case, I should say this is not like signaling that employers and domestic workers are equal to each other, that employers, know, domestic workers know that there's sort of a boundary that they can't cross. And so, for example, if, if there's an un- uneaten piece of cake, they know not to eat it. Or if there's, you know, some like gourmet thing that's hard, that's expensive in the region, like manchego cheese, they know not to eat it. Um, And they all, uh, and employers, I mean, interestingly, even if they're like humanitarian and how they feed their domestic workers, it's not necessarily because they, um, it's not necessarily because they, um, you know, are altruistic. Um, Oftentimes it's they're morally, you know, like they're, their actions are monitored or, you know, shaped by, you know, what they think are moral standards that, sorry, I have this crying baby in the background. <laughs> so, um, 
but it's like they the employers kind of have this moral gauge that you know moral standard that they know they have to abide with so i have this one employer that we interviewed that was complaining to my team basically saying that her domestic worker buys shrimp every week because the domestic worker eats the top ramen and then she likes to put like shrimps in her top ramen and um the employer gets so annoyed that she does that um feels that the domestic worker is so entitled to like just buy these shrimps but you know when we ask her is she going to say something to the domestic worker she was like no because she knew that she would look like a bad person if she controlled like and limited what the domestic worker could buy so again so you have these humanitarian employers who let domestic workers eat whatever they want to eat and these are the ideal employers but then i want to say that they're not necessarily acting out of altruism but it's more kind of morals are kind of shaping how they should behave then you have a second group or a second uh, culture that we find which is those who are um like uh, th- those who infantilize their domestic workers and so infantilization happens when employers let domestic workers eat whatever uh, let domestic workers eat three meals a day but they don't necessarily ever ask domestic workers what kind of foods they prefer to eat they like give zero consideration to the pa- to the palate of the domestic worker and so um you know it's like they infantilize them kind of like kids you tell kids is what's good for you and you tell kids what they should be eating and so some employers treat their domestic workers that way and oftentimes you know this uh is like um an acceptable condition for domestic workers um you know especially they like, say when they have um lebanese employers because they say lebanese food is usually delicious but then sometimes the foods that the domestic that the employers eat don't align with you know the preferences of the domestic worker and this often happens when employers are vegetarian or employers have a preference for spicy food and that usually often leads to domestic workers finding themselves like kind of bordering dehumanization in terms of the kinds of foods that they have access to um and then a third kind of um household are households and this is the worst and these are households that dehumanize domestic workers and um we see that when they limit domestic workers to only eating one meal a day uh we also see this when employers just give them leftovers to eat and um you know domestic workers don't passively accept this condition they usually will complain to employers but employers they realize domestic workers realize uh dehumanize them and are very racist against them uh why in one case i have an interviewee who told me that when she complained to her employers about needing to eat more than one meal a day um the employer basically told her uh you're not filipino you're uh you're not emirati you're just a filipino so if you die i'll just put you in the garbage can right i mean so you know i think emiratis are more likely to do this because they fear the law less than other people in the emirates and so then um they are you know they feel they're not likely to be punished for their bad behavior um and it's usually actually the older generation who are likely to do this and so they're the ones who were you know kind of adults when slavery was still legal in the country 
And usually there's a conflict between generations and Emirati households about this. And so you find younger Emirati like sneaking food into the domestic workers room um, to, you know, basically kind of protest how their in-laws are locking the refrigerator so domestic workers don't have access to food. And, um, you know, but it's all not only Emiratis who do this, like other Arabs in, in my uh, sample were doing this as well. Um, and so the problem of limited food, however, is not something you could um, determine by class where it's like poor people are not like feeding their domestic workers. That's not necessarily true. Um, I did find that those who fear the law less are more likely to do this um, than others. And so Westerners are not likely to starve their domestic workers because of their, tempor you know, their temporary membership in that society. They're very much afraid of the law. Um, and so then, um, you know, I, I don't have time to really talk about the theoretical implications, but, you know, what I do want to show is that uh, we have to basically just, you know, look at, um, you know, domestic workers and employers as, agent as agentic subjects and our job as sociologists is to look at how people negotiate um, the structures that they, you know, face. And unfortunately, my colleagues have kind of not done that so well and that they've basically just reduced our understanding of domestic work in the region to the structures that shape them and ignored how people negotiate and react to such structures. And unfortunately, sort of that um, simple intellectual argument um, has the inadvertent result of, you know, providing a very orientalist um, depiction of labor condition, um, labor conditions in that region of the world. So let me um, end there. Um, thank you, Rizal, for the most fascinating and nuanced um, account of your book. Um, I'm now going to pass, uh, pass the floor to uh, Lena. Very welcome, Lena. Thank you, Shalini, and thank you, Rizal, and greeting everybody from uh, uh, from Beirut and um, Russell, um, thank you for uh, for for this presentation and for this outlook. Um, which I mean, I've learned a lot from uh, uh, both perusing your uh, your research and also um, you know lis listening to your uh, to your presentation. And um, I'm just going to make a few comments, trying to um, link the uh, kind of the approach and the findings of Russell link it to uh, or, or, or actually see what it means at the level of uh, uh, any context like that of Lebanon uh, and also from the from a from a from an intersectional feminist perspective um, um, and so I'm just going to make a few comments, uh, not in a particular order, but, you know, the comments that for me um, came up very strongly as I was reading um, uh, Rissell's book, but also as I was listening to her right now. And again, I'm, I'm grounding my comments in the context of, uh, of, uh, of Lebanon. So, so essentially, um, um, uh, let's start by saying that this um, movement, this movement of uh, migrant women, domestic workers uh, to a country like Lebanon means really not moving to a better place. It's moving to a place which remains in a, in, in a situation of post-conflict, 
uh, a very unstable place and a place where the economic degradation has meant that no matter what the condition of employments are, migrants, migrant women, domestic workers have been impacted most by uh, the context, the, 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 the political, economic and social context in, in Lebanon. Uh, so that's uh, just to keep, uh, that's one piece of the, of the puzzle. Uh, and uh, they, there's another uh, uh, point that uh, struck me quite hard in the book and in the presentation is uh, uh, the, 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 the looking at morals as shaping and mediating relationships uh, and also how do we, um, you know, how do we understand inequalities vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the morality, the moral construct or the moral mindset of, of employees. I also want to put this out there because I want to go, come back to it. So from the perspective of Lebanon, you know, who are the stakeholders and why does this complicate the issue of morality? So on the one hand, there's uh, um, uh, the sending uh, uh, countries, the sending governments, uh, and I would argue that the position, the well-being, the welfare of the migrant women domestic workers varies the, 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 um, how important this is felt from the perspective of the sending countries, I would say this is, the best I can say is that it's un, uneven. The host country is a country that is dysfunctional, where uh, there is solid, tangible, consistent evidence of abuse, racism, mistreatment, uh, and violence against women, migrant women, domestic workers, I would argue way more than male uh, uh, workers. Uh, also the complicity uh, of uh, law enforcement as part of this, part and parcel of this abuse. Um, and also the employers themselves, uh, whom with the employment, with the whole network of employment agency, agencies are actually structured. And, and, and for me as an intersectional feminist, I have to go back to structural injustice and structural oppression. It's actually structured in a way that is in very conducive to any form of, uh, of abuse. And of course, the migrant women, domestic workers as agents, and, and I do appreciate uh, the comment that their experiences of this form of employment vary. I totally appreciate this. Um, and I totally appreciate the fact that we have to look at this in terms of diversity of migrant women, uh, 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 domestic workers, diversity in terms of age, diversity in terms of their experiences of abuse or not, uh, uh, diversity in terms of where they come from, Another form of diversity that we never talk about, but it is one of the determinants of abuse is diversities in terms of sexuality uh, and sexual identities. And then diversity in terms of what networks do they, do, they, do they have? Have they been able or allowed to develop? Which are all, I think, factors in uh, uh, what is their labor experience, if I may say, uh, uh, look like. So, so basically while I recognize that there are diverse uh, employment experiences. All these intersectional factors actually are actually shape this 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 experience. But um, um, when we are 
in a state, in a situation where the law, the existing letter of the law is one that facilitates, condones, uh, and allows, is conducive to experiences of abuse, oppression, etc., which make these experiences more like the um, um, more omnipresent than your individual experiences or isolated experiences, where actually this, these laws, the, and, and I mean by the law, the kafala law, is a law that has been that has been created, written, and put in implementation so that such situations of oppressions and inequality remain. And where, you know, at least I'm talking from the perspective of, of Lebanon, where, where impunity is maintained and produced and reproduced. To be honest, this is, for me, is the issue. Um, and, and I can only look at it from the perspective, what do we normalize in terms of labor experiences in other forms of work versus the experience of, uh, uh, versus being uh, uh, a domestic worker. And, you know, I cannot as a feminist, uh, as, as an intersectional feminist, uh, um, um, think within a framework of cultures of employers because nobody in an employment situation should depend on the culture and morality of the employer. Nobody should be left to the whims of or uh, 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 charity uh, or character uh, of an employer. That's why we have we 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 have and and otherwise it's very problematic. That's why we have labor laws. That's why we have trade unions. That's why people who work mobilize. Uh, basically, something that we hardly see in this in this situation. Um, and therefore, for me, uh, uh, Shalini, please tell me how, if 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 I've exceeded if I exceeded my time. Um, that's why, for, that's why for me it. That's why for me, and I, I will end in a couple of minutes. That's why for me it's it's very um, uh, uh, challenging. If, it, it, actually, even more so, uncomfortable for me to think. Uh, in terms of the cultures of employers and the you know the different experiences uh, as an entry point um, to describe the situation or to understand the situation, although I in no way deny uh, how deny the existence of um, uh, this culture um, and and how it impacts etc. What I'm saying in it at the end of the day, yes, two minutes. What I'm saying is. We, they must, we must have rules of engagement that apply for any kind of work in any sector, be it, you know, regular, any kind of employment. And the rules of engagement means that there are rights attached to every form of employment. And we have seen enough in the case of Lebanon, we have seen enough abuse to say that uh, the good experiences, you know, that's lovely. This is great. For this is this is wonderful, but the context, the letter of the law, the kefala system in itself, can only be conducive to uh, to abuse. And let's remember, kefala system. Kefala system is a system that applies for migrants, not for expats. And that's the main. That's a, that's a major 
a form of discrimination which is in, unacceptable. And I would finish by by saying, you know, let's remember uh, um, let's remember the ways in which migrant women domestic workers uh, challenge the kafala system and have been uh, um, historically challenged the systems through rebellion, through mobilizations, through uh, attempts. So far, I have to say, failed attempt to 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 create independent, strong, robust trade unions. But actually, all this form of mobilization is basically telling us that the, the conditions of employment are not acceptable. And the fact is that we cannot rely on the morality and on the, on the good faith and on the kindness of employers, same as we cannot rely on this in any, in, in any form of, uh, of employment or on, on the job market in, in general. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, Rassel and Shalini for this. Thank you so much, Lina, for bringing such fascinating perspectives of intersectionality and your perspectives from Lebanon. Greatly appreciate it. I now call upon uh, Stephen to uh, give his comments. Very welcome. Uh, thank you, Shalini. Uh, so I, I try to comment uh, sort of from my own perspective which is that of a, a comparative political economist who's worked on migrant labor markets, not with specific focus on domestic workers, but uh, migrant labor markets in the Gulf in general. Uh, and I have to say that the book is really very, very complementary to many things that I've, that I've written and researched from very different perspectives. And it's, it's a great book that works on many different levels from an institutional perspective of the receiving states, uh, of the sending states to the household level, uh, the perspective of the employers as well as the workers. So it's uh, it's really very, very rich and uh, very thought provoking. Um, and it's also, I think, emotionally very poignant. And it, it brought me back to some of my own experience when I was doing my project with the ILO in uh, Doha and uh, me and some other people on the research team uh, tried to speak to some more or less randomly chosen domestic workers in uh, in a shopping mall. Uh, we had domestic workers that, that were presented with by, by the Ministry of Labor, but we, we wanted to avoid sort of the selection bias of only speaking to, to hand-picked interviewees. Uh, and so we, we managed to speak to some domestic workers sort of casually uh, in, uh, in a shopping mall. And uh, <clears throat> so we, we tried to sort of ease the atmosphere by... Uh, obviously, this was all uh, voluntary, and we explained that it would all be confidential, and we tried to ease the atmosphere by inviting them just to a local uh, coffee stand to buy them a, a coffee and offer them, uh, you know, a piece of cake. And uh, if it, not, not a single one of them during the whole conversation, which was extremely rich and, and fascinating, dared to even touch their drink or dared to touch the food that we bought for them, because there was such a such a strong sense of, of social hierarchy between us as uh, sort of professional white collar expats and those domestic workers. It was a really uh, inadvertently very awkward situation that kind of brought home the extreme social hierarchies that are, that are, that are involved in, that they're hard to overcome, even, I think, uh, if, if you want to. And, uh, and the stories, they were, they were very, uh, they were heartbreaking of uh, women who'd been in the country for many years, whose husband worked, you know, if husbands worked a few hundred meters away, but they were prevented from their employers from ever meeting their husband uh, for during their whole duration of stay. And Rassel has, has similar examples in her book. 
And so it, it brought back that um, that very human dimension of of some of my own uh, some of my own work, and and more broadly, sort of the structural feature of the extreme social hierarchies and and status inequalities that that we're dealing with here, and that are hard to to, to address even if you want to mitigate them. Um, and I think the the book's fundamental argument that there is an extremely low floor of protection, or there, there's almost no floor of protection under the traditional sponsorship system, but at the same time there are moral economies that play out above this floor of protection that can result in very different employer domestic worker relationships. I think I think that's that that's very very um, to the point and very useful. Uh, and then the framing of those moral economies in terms of uh, uh, humanizing or treating as human, uh, infantilizing and dehumanizing. I think that that also rings true with my own experience. Um, and uh, you know this kind of moral paternalism, the 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 infantilization, is something that's very much I think invited by the extreme status inequalities and the fact that uh, many certainly first time migrant coming migrants coming from a very poor rural background in the Philippines have very, very little experience in dealing with people uh, from outside of their original social context. They, they have very little knowledge be, uh, beyond the introductory seminars that they get in uh, 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 back home pre-departure. Uh, so it's uh, the, the situation almost uh, invites a kind of benevolent, if very sort of paternalistic, uh, infantilizing approach to, uh, to to domestic workers. And I think the infantilization concept is, is very useful in, uh, in that context. And I think it can be, in my experience, it can be very well-meaning, even, even if it is uh, demeaning and paternalizing uh, fundamentally. Um, and even in, uh, in Russell's description of the pre-departure seminars, uh, they sound quite uh, paternalizing and infantilizing. You know the the way that uh, the the uh, future domestic workers are taught there, are, are spoken to. It sounds quite. Uh, it's, it sounds very very top down. So I think it's it's part of a, a broader context of of extreme status inequalities. Um, now one paradox that really has been striking me ever since I've been traveling to the region is that uh, especially in households where the status inequality is very salient uh, and uh, where in some cases abuse is rife, uh, parents still hand over their children uh, to the care of domestic workers who they uh, treat very badly, have very little trust in and think are absolutely inferior to them. And I think uh, an interesting future research project would be the impact of that on the relationship between the domestics and the children uh, and and uh, sort of the almost the, the psychology of uh, child rearing and, and the impact on the personality of children growing up in that context. I know that would be very, very hard to do, but I find it fascinating that uh, people, their parents hand over their children to people whom they detest and abuse in some cases. So that's, uh, it's, uh, it's very paradoxical. Um, I think the critique that not all behavior is sort of economic, uh, uh, rational choice, um, uh, utility maximizing uh, behavior. I think that that's that's very well taken, but I think there's there's a difference between the relationships in households between domestics and workers, where there are more complex moral economies playing out, and, and then sort of more institutional players 
like uh, the recruitment agencies, where it's, it does seem that sort of economic self-interest is really predominant. And I think that's an interesting contrast that, uh, you know, sort of the, the selfishness and the exploitation seems uh, more prevalent among the agencies that really look after their own economic self-interest, whereas there's much more variety of moral behavior w w within the household. Um, one uh, phenomenon in the book that I've seen in many other social contexts in the Gulf uh, and that, that brought me back to some of my own research is the phenomenon of, of, of brokerage, of people, of uh, fixers, of brokers making information uh, available, making access to uh, administrative procedures available uh, to individuals who are uh, on a lower social rung, who are less well connected, uh, and who need those fixes to, to help them. So there can be uh, the, the fixes at home in the Philippines, it can be the recruitment agencies themselves, it can be uh, brokers in the informal economy where, where uh, runaway domestic workers need people to uh, find accommodation for them and need people to do potentially paperwork for them. And uh, this phenomenon of brokerage is something that's very widespread in the Gulf, also beyond uh, the context of domestic workers, all the way to uh, the way the, the state interacts with the private sector, the way uh, other expatriates, non-domestic workers interact with the state or with, uh, with uh, citizens of the GCC. And I think it's something that comes about in a context, again, where there's extreme status inequality. Um, there are individuals who are very far down on the pecking order who still need access to certain resources and uh, where regulatory systems are inaccessible and very intransparent. So I think this combination of factors leads to the emergence of those kind of rent-seeking strata of brokers and fixers who make things available for people who are well less well positioned. So I, I found that an interesting example of, of a broader phenomenon that goes all the way back to uh, so the pre-departure experience in the Philippines. Um, similarly, the kind, some of the workarounds that are described to uh, deal with regulations and practice, uh, <clears throat> like the, the fact that uh, when the Philippines banned uh, the export of domestic workers for a few years, they were just brought in on private sector cleaning contracts and then informally used for domestic work. Uh, those types of workarounds, again, they're very, very uh, widespread also in other walks of life uh, across all segments of, of the labor market and many other markets in the region. So I found that interesting. And there's also the, there's the reverse phenomenon in Kuwait where uh, there is a minimum wage for expatriates working in the private sector but no minimum wage for domestic workers. And uh, then the opposite of what Russell describes in her book happens, which is that uh, workers are brought in on domestic workers' visas, and then they end up working in uh, construction sites or elsewhere in menial jobs, because on a, on a domestic work visa, they don't have to be paid the minimum wage. Uh, so I guess it highlights the broader issue that enforcement of rules is very, very tricky in a context where uh, there's such extreme status inequality, people are very vulnerable, and a lot of those employment relationships, at least in parts, happen in, in, in the private sphere. And then the last point that I was uh, going to make, the last thing that the book evoked in a, in a very productive way, was that uh, both employers and workers, they operate sort of in a web of, of myths and rumors. There's a lot of misinformation uh, and again, that's something that I've seen in the in the labor markets and other markets in the Gulf more more generally. So um, there, there's all the mythology about domestic workers who run away that Russell uh, rightly describes um, 
it's, it's, it's almost pure fiction, the idea that they run away because uh, life in the informal economy is great. They can make much more money. Uh, they they uh, run away even from uh, very uh, good employment relationships in, in uh, the, the formal uh, domestic economy, whereas in fact, uh, informal life is, is really quite terrible and very precarious and wages are, are very low there. And there, there are many other rumors about sort of expatriate life that, that are held by uh, both citizens and sort of white collar richer expatriates that are completely off base. There's a whole mythology <coughs> about uh, Bengali, as they call them, uh, so, so Bangladeshi national uh, mafias and how dangerous they are. And um, conversely, I think there are also a lot of myths among uh, domestic workers that that are uh, that are not true, and there's a lot of misinformation. When I spoke to the uh, domestic workers in Doha, uh, where they didn't know the first thing actually about their formal labor rights uh, under under Qatari legislation, which was really striking because there had been reported a lot in the local press, but really didn't percolate through to the actual workers who were who were concerned. And last point in that context, I was wondering whether this fear that Russell describes among employers that when uh, their domestic workers do something terrible, they'll be criminally liable for it, whether that is actually true. I know that you can, you might have to pay a certain fee if someone who is under your sponsorship uh, does something criminal. But I, I, my hunch would be that again, this fear that you're completely one-to-one -one criminally liable for what people under your sponsorship do, that, that this is just wrong. You know, that, that, that's not true. It's just I, possibly yet another myth uh, in that kind of web of, of uh, myths and, and fears that, that have been uh, woven around domestic employment. So I'd, I'd have more to say, but I'll, um, I'll stop right here. So it's, it's a really very rich and fascinating work that you know, evoked a lot of uh, memories to to my own work that, that uh, looked at other parts of the Gulf labor market. Thank you, Stefan. That was uh, very rich and uh, illuminating. And uh, thank you for bringing in your own perspectives and your own research uh, over many years. I'm now going to invite Rissal to answer some of the questions that we have in the Q&A. So Rissal, I, um, I, do you want to unmute yourself? Yeah, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to take you through some of the questions. The first question here is by Kirstein, who is um, a British Academy Global Professor at the International Inequalities Institute. That's my institute. And she's saying, thank you for presenting this excellent work. Could you say something about how the UAE, the UAE government is thinking about this situation? I heard that there are discussions about delinking visas from jobs, or is this incorrect information? Um, Would you like yeah, so thank you, um, Kristen, for your question. Um, so there has been a delinking um, or a revisiting of the kafala system. And that's basically, you know, how when you uh, go into a country in the Gulf region, uh, you are bound to your sponsor and you can only work for your sponsor, which is what I talked about earlier. Um, and so while that delinking has happened because of a lot of pressure from uh, multilateral agencies, such as the ILO, um, the government exempted domestic work from the delinking. And so um, 
while many other jobs are not linked to you know a sponsor anymore and that employers have greater flexibility in the labor employees have greater, greater flexibility in the labor market um, that still remains untrue for domestic workers and um, there's many reasons for that like it's not seen as real work um, it's you know seen as a private household matter and and Kirsten uh, Stephen has also replied to uh, your question in the chat. Um, we have a question from uh, Salsan Abdul Rahim, who is actually an associate professor based at the American University of Beirut and has also joined us from uh, Beirut. So she's saying, thank you very much. And I agree with the shortcomings of scholarship on gender and migration uh, in the Arab region. Um, and um, I also agree with the need to provide a nuanced analysis of the de detriments of employers' labor practices, which vary, and, and the data shows this. Um, but um, so that's that's a comment from her. And uh, the, there's a, the question that follows is from Paddy, who is um, an LSE alumni based in Zambia. And she's saying to all the speakers, what new thinking can civil society and researchers take on the call to abolish the kafala system, which underpins workers' relationships? Do you see an impact on worker-employer relationships with ethical uh, recruitment approaches? So would you like to answer that first? Sure. Um, so one thing I want to say is that we need to, you know, decouple the kafala from the Middle East and actually look at a kafala-like system existing globally for migrant workers, right? And I think that's like one of the problems is that, you know, many people sort of just look at the kafala and think this is just happening in the Middle East. But as I said in the beginning, you know, for migrant domestic workers, this legal system is actually the norm for them. The only country that has had, like the, that does not have domestic workers in a kafala-like situation is Italy. Um, Canada is the only other country to revisit this. But um, so in Canada, traditionally migrant domestic workers, when they came in, they were bound to the family that sponsored them and then to get landed immigrant status, they had to work continuously for this household for two years as a live-in domestic worker. If not, if they don't accomplish that within a four-year span, they uh, get deported back to their country of origin. So a lot of people, um, activists in Canada protested this, and then so they changed the law but the law is now domestic workers can work for any household, not as a live-in worker, but at the cost of never qualifying for permanent legal status. So that's not really a um, result of activism that the domestic workers were embracing, right? So that sort of answers the civil society um, involvement with the kafala. But what I really want to emphasize in this our discussion, this you know early evening there, is that it's really important to not see the kafala as just this exceptional evil thing, cultural thing that's just going on in the Middle East. It's actually pretty global in terms of how migrant workers are ex accepted in, even in the United States. 
when we look at the temporary labor migration system that has been, you know, that has been in existence longer than the labor migration systems in the region of the world we are talking about. Um, and so do you see an impact on worker employer relationships with ethical recruitment approaches? Um, like, you know, without question, I think that um, recruitment agencies, as Stefan was pointing out, really have a lot of power to um, determine, um, you know, to educate migrant domestic workers, to protect migrant domestic workers, um, to, you know, advocate for migrant domestic workers. And, and you know, it's complicated, but this oftentimes, oftentimes does not um, happen. Um. Thank, thank you, Rizal. There's a question from Armand, who's, um, she's a, sorry, uh, this is an LSC MSc in international migration and uh, public policy. But I think you've kind of answered that. The question is, can our understanding of kafala be generalized within the Gulf states, or do you think it should be approached from a, per, uh, from a country perspective? Uh, and I think you've kind of said that this you know, you these instances are quite global. They, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. You kind of answer mm -hmm. this. So, um, do you want to say anything else, or should I move on to uh, Daniela? Um, let me just say, um, you know, something about you know a per country perspective. I mean, I do think that um, you know, so the con the question really also you know puts a lot of weight in the law. And so, what I do want to say is that. What we have, what we should know by this point is that laws are not a sufficient solution to uh, improve the conditions of domestic work. And we could turn to Canada for that. Um, the work of Diva Stasulis and Abigail Bakan that um, on the legal governance, the governance of domestic workers in Canada and the multiple protectionist laws that they have, have not translated necessarily to the better protection of workers there. And so we see since ILO Convention 189, um, the Decent Work for Domestic Workers Convention that was passed in 2011 and re later ratified that led to, um, so while most countries in the globe do not include domestic work in their labor law protections, what we have is we have um, countries um, basically put, you know, putting into law domestic worker labor laws, and that includes Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, but yet we know that the enforcement of those laws will be really uh, weak. And so um, in my book, I'm trying to say, well, how can, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have these protectionist laws, but I'm also saying that we have to be creative and look at other ways to um, improve domestic worker conditions. And my little contribution is that I found morals was another way that we could, um, monitor and, and you know, have domestic employers self-regulate their behavior. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like 
Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Right. Um, thank you so much, Rissal. There's a question from Daniela, uh, who's at uh, Bellyfeld University. The question is, in Brazil, some studies have shown that domestic workers had in fact, uh, had in effect uh, in liberating white Brazilian women to enter the job market as this would free them from domestic tasks traditionally. And have you found anything similar in your research? So yes, mm -hmm. would were your informants working women? Were there maybe something yeah. about the background of, of that? Well, so in, in my previous work, I talked about what I think Daniela is talking about is um, or referring to, we could generally call the International Division of Reproduct Reproductive Labor or the care chain, which is something I talked about in my much earlier work in which um, like privileged women, um, enter the labor market and outsource domestic work to, you know, migrant women. And so the person who actually talked about that initially is Evelyn Akana Glenn in her uh, very important 1992 article that was published in Science called uh, The Racial Division of Reproductive Labor. And so the International Division of Reproductive, Reproductive Labor adds to uh, Nakano Glenn's work by basically saying that migrant domestic workers themselves then outsource the care work that they have to other less privileged women as you know who they rely on as paid or unpaid laborers to care for the children that they you know left behind in transnational families right um, there's a very interesting question that's come up uh, from Patrick who's um, LSE sociology director and uh, of the MSC International Migration and Public Policy. Um, the question is, well, good evening. Do you have any sense of how your typology of household control might vary by the nature of the relationship between the couple heading the household? Male dominance equal male, female or female dominating, at least on domestic issues. In other words, is, is it simply an unadulterated patriarchy in all cases. Yeah. So thank you for your question. And so then, um, so if this would really depend like, um, you know, across, you know, so we have such a diversity of households. So we have such a diversity of households in the United Arab Emirates, um, due particularly because of like the diverse nationalities of residents of the country. And so, you know, what you do have However, that seems to be constant is that women are often the ones managing their domestic workers. Um, and oftentimes they have um, children. And so whether the women are working or not, they're the ones who are um, sort of determining what the household's relationship is with the domestic workers. In some cases, it's it's more extreme, um, be, you know. So in some Emirati households, many Emirati, many Emirati households, the domestic workers are not allowed to look at the men in the eye, um, and so then you know you could just imagine the interactions being so minimal. Um, 
but you know, I, I mean, is it unadulterated um, patriarchy? Uh, in, you know, I, I don't want to go that far, but um, I, I will say that, yeah, I mean, the fact that women are the ones managing is usually, yeah, it's, it's not causing any kind of egalitarian division of labor here. Sure. Um, uh, Rasal, uh, Lena has uh, a few comments to make. Uh, Lena, please, please come on. Come on board. <laughs> thank you, Shalini. And thank you. Thank you, Rasal. And um, basically, I just wanted to perhaps comment on something important that you have said, which is, uh, and which I couldn't agree with. Uh, um, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I agree with it, which is that laws are, are insufficient. Uh, I totally agree with you. And this has been a tension that has existed in our circles since time immemorial. Is the law sufficient? Should we spend so much energy on, on, on law reform? What does it mean, etc.? But uh, I think that the comment that I want to make is that at the, you know, at the end of the day, we are living, again, I take our example, we are living in a context uh, where you have something as, I insist, as horrendous as the kafala law. We are living with the letter of the law, for instance, in Lebanon, that criminalizes homosexual relationship as contra naturam. We have laws that allow certain types of crimes against women to, uh, uh, to happen. Is it sufficient to change these laws? Of course not, it's not sufficient. Uh, but I would certainly argue that um, um, there's, a, there's a condition sine qua non for, for beginning to change the status quo, which is to change these horrendous texts, which is actually to challenge these horrendous texts and to go beyond them. That is one aspect of uh, you know of reform that needs to that needs to happen the other transformative aspect is actually which societies do we need do we want which which mindsets do we want how do we get to a point where uh, a dignified work where labor laws where rules of engagements are the same for everybody when do we get to a point where we have a context that does not allow such uh, abuses uh, I'm not saying that um, uh, we're going to find this anywhere else, but but I think that is you know that is where our efforts are 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 converging. So yeah, I think these were the the points that I wanted to make. Thank you, Shalini. Um, Rizal, there's a question, a very interesting question. Thank you, thank you, Lena. Sorry, um, from uh, Jaimana. I, I haven't got her affiliation, but I'm just going to read you the comment. Um, she thanks you very much. And she says, um, um, you mentioned that you interviewed Filipina domestic workers, but we know that Filipina women are often at the top of the racialized hierarchy of domestic workers, where darker women from other parts of the world are considered less educated, less skilled, and thus more often subjugated to mistreatment from employers. In that sense, she says, I found servants of globalization to be more critical of structural, racial, gender, and political economic forces that shape the employer-employee relationship. I wonder why these analytical frames seem absent or minimum, minimal in unfree. 
How do you think race and racism plays into the domestic labor relationship in the UAE and under Kafala more generally? Okay, so thank you for your question. Um, race is complicated and that, um, you know, it's like kind of a very Western like um, formation, right? Of that, you know, does it really speak of South to South relations? Or is this a South to North relationship? And that's something I can't really fully answer. So, um, so thank you for your point about my lack of, um, and pointing out that I don't really talk about racialization in the context of the Gulf, uh, in particular, um, the racial hierarchies that might form, or we could call them the national hierarchies that might form um, among domestic workers in the perspective of employers. So, um, you know, so, I mean, I didn't want to just talk about like how Western employers perceive their domestic workers, which, you know, if I did, I could have a more clear discussion of the racialization of domestic workers. Um, but then if you complicate the discussion and you have South Asian employers and Emirati employers, then it gets more, a little bit more complicated. But in terms of national differences, one thing I did find was that how sending agent, I mean, how sending countries manage domestic workers um, really results in different labor conditions. And we really have to pay more attention to that. And we have not sufficiently paid attention to that. Um, and so the Philippine, the Philippine government gives a much more substantive pre-departure orient, orientation seminar than does Indonesia or um, like um, Nepal or um, Ethiopia. So Ethiopia, for example, is only like two hours. Um, and so what's interesting is um, Indonesia is six months, but much of that is spent on like, this is how you sweep the floor. This is a vacuum cleaner and not so much on like rights education on domestic workers. Um, and so then, um, a lot of, you know, so I collaborated with Rachel Sylvie, but we ended up choosing to write two separate books. She's eventually writing a book on Indonesians in the region. I wrote the one on Filipinos, but we actually collected our data in tandem with each other. So we were in the field together all the time. And what was very interesting that came up in Rachel Sylvie's findings is a lot of the Indonesians were envious of Filipinos. And they were saying, Filipinos are more tolerant, you know, like not tolerant or braver, like Filipinos were less tolerant of poor conditions while we're like fearful of um, demanding, you know, better conditions. Right. So is that like a cultural thing that Filipinos are just braver subjects or is that Filipinos are more educated about their rights? So that was a question Rachel and I were toying with in the field. And then an another thing was that um, sending states also enforce different labor standards for domestic workers. So when I met with Bangladeshi, um, when I met with Bangladeshi government officials, they were telling me, uh, and I am always quoting them when they said, your government is crazy because, you know, they're enforcing such high labor standards that Filipinos are going to suddenly be like pricing themselves out of the market. Um, because you can get three Bangladeshi for one Filipino. And when they told me that, they were referring to the fact that the Philippine government um, 
highly recommends and legally makes it you know, obligatory for employers to sign a contract that says that they're going to pay domestic workers $400 a month. In contrast, Bangladesh only requires a $160 a month minimum wage. And so that's what they were referring to. So it's like an example of how countries have different labor standards. Sending countries have different labor standards that they impose, which then leads to different labor conditions. Um, and so in terms of race, what we did fi find in the field, me and Rachel Sylvie, what we found was there was a lot of um, co-ethnic alliance that occurred organically for um, among Indonesians, Filipinos, and Nepalese. Nepalese are not a big group, but if you look at them in parks, you will find it during the day off that they're often sitting with Indonesians and Filipinos and that they've been adopted to the group, even though they don't share a common language and the Nepalese are often just sitting there silently. But they will not interact with the Ethiopians nor the Kenyans. And in the, the Ethiopians in particular, a lot of the Filipinos and Indonesians we met had a lot of distrust of them. And they were basically saying that there was a lot more alliance between Ethiopians and their Emirati employers because they share the same religion um, and they share the same like phenotype. And so in my experiences of visiting Emirati households, my surprise was there are a lot of, you know, very dark Emiratis women, like, you know, that they're black. I mean, I walked in their households and you could see, you know, fine. Because a lot of times you see women wearing um, their traditional outfits, and, but you don't know which Arab country they're from. But then when you actually go to their households, you're like, oh, so this is like an Emirati household. And what I did find was a lot of them were black. And so it really complicated our ability, me and Rachel Silvies, to really talk about racial hierarchies there. Because we were not talking about like a Western, we were not looking at a Western country. And so what we found was inequalities more determined by national differences among domestic workers. What we didn't, what we couldn't talk about was the national tension between Ethiopians, Kenyans, Blacks, Black domestic workers, African domestic workers, and Asian domestic workers. And so we hope that other people do research, more, more people who are like more, you know, doing racial studies, racial and ethnic studies will, will look at, you know, cross racial ethnic relations among domestic workers in the region. Um, Rizal, we still have about 12 minutes. Uh, would you like to answer some of the questions uh, and comments from uh, Stephen, from his uh, yeah. commentary? Yes, um, I really appreciate, you know, this um, emphasis on the extreme status inequalities that domestic workers find themselves in. And um, the comments of Stefan also, you know, um, some something I didn't mention and that he mentioned was that, you know, a question is like a lot of women, like a lot of the domestic workers, you know, they put themselves in this situation, not with like, you know, not like completely clueless that they could get abused. Like, you know, you read in the newspapers in the Philippines, you watch the news, you hear of bodies coming back, you um, get an orientation and in the orientation, they tell you, you will be raped. They don't even say you will likely 
get raped. They will say, you know, you will get raped. I mean, that was like kind of, I went to so many of these pre-departure orientation classes. Um, and so, you know, the teacher asked them, you know, you're probably going to get raped. Are you, cha- you know, are you having second thoughts about going there? And the women are saying no, because, you know, they'll say, you know, God will protect me. We have different destinies. The des- most destinies don't end up in rape. So let's all pray to God right now that we don't get raped. So then who are people that put themselves in such extreme vulnerable situations, right? And so something I should emphasize about the group of migrants who end up in this region of the world, they are, uh, in contrast to what my- migration scholars say, where the poorest of the poor cannot ever leave the country of destination origin, that is not true. I think recruitment agencies, uh, debt-driven migration actually has opened the door uh, to and made migration a possibility for the most disenfranchised members of society, the people who you find working as domestic workers in the Gulf are often people who are from areas of the Philippines without a wage economy. And so they are extremely desperate, extremely poor. And for them, you know, they suffer from, you know, like, basically it's like the the violence of poverty, right? And the violence of poverty is a worse option than the violence of servitude and the possibility of rape, right? And um, that, that is something that I, I wish to emphasize because I think it is a question, why would people put themselves in this horribly vulnerable situation? And it's because they were in a pretty horrible situation to begin with. Um, and so then um, second thing was about the extreme status inequality that was raised. You know, it really raises this question then of what makes a good employer. And what I found was that you as an employer have a moral responsibility, not just to put the food on the table, but there's actually a lot of labor where you have to be consciously undoing, like, and fighting that extreme status inequality. So it's almost like every day you have to tell your domestic worker, yes, you can eat this. No, you don't have to ask me for permission. You can eat this. You can eat. I mean, it's it's like a, a labor thing that employers, like what they don't realize is that if they're not proactive, in their dismantling of the status inequality, the status inequality will remain the same, even if they said once when the domestic worker first entered the household, um, you know, you are not like a slave, you can eat whatever you want, you can call your family. You know, it's like, I found that good employers have to be the ones every day. Did you talk to your children today? I wanna make sure you talk to your children today, you know? And if you don't do those kinds of like interventions, it's likely to stay an extremely unequal and extremely oppressive for domestic workers because the bar of labor standards are so low to begin with. And so even though that I'm saying that not all domestic workers are like horribly treated, I'm definitely not saying that this is like an ideal situation. What I'm just saying is that um, contrary to my colleagues, however, it's not the worst all the time. You know, it's not it's not this like horrendous thing, you know, all the time. It, it's not all slavery, um, but it's definitely not, not ideal is the point um, I want to make. So, so you almost have to be a bit patronizing and dismantling the patriarchal yes. expectations. Yes. 
Thank you, Rizal. Um, as the chair, can I take the liberty to just um, put forward some of my own comments, which I had after also reading your book. Uh, we still have a few minutes. Um, as an anthropologist, my assessment is that I find your book very nuanced, uh, especially the ethnography. For example, on page 98, you let the readers gently know that one domestic worker is not being denied food by their employer, but is exercising a particular type of agency and judgment where she can avoid being in the direct glare of her employers who will ask her to watch over the children. And many people would read this as abuse, but domestic workers here are strategically uh, well-tuned in finding ways to avoid the overwork that defines their lives. Um, another point is that, uh, you know, some of your figures here, 2,349 domestic workers absconded, uh, 35 were sexually abused. Your argument here is that migration and poverty are interlinked and women still remain aspiring subjects throughout this dire narrative of global inequality. And you tease out the dynamics of unfreedom of poverty versus unfreedom of uh, criminalization. And you move away from a typically fixed narrative around representations of kafala as slavery and victimhood, focusing more on women's lived experiences, their voices, their everyday movements in contact zones of extreme hierarchy, allowing us to rethink uh, different types of freedom and what relational perspectives can convey about employment relationships. I feel this is somewhat a shift from the dominant narrative in GCC literature of women just being vi victims and not agents of their destinies in some ways. And I think, you know, your focus on material constraints and journeys of aspirations uh, are very illuminating. Um, I, 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 I like the way you analyze what a good employer is. It's, it's very rare in the literature. And uh, there's a sharpness to how uh, domestic workers view their work and relationships with their employers and, and vice versa. And as you point out, and I think this is a great analytical point, that good employers are not understood by domestic workers as meaning those who treat them as equals. And um, if I can just draw on my own context here of Euro-American uh, expatriates in India that I've been studying for a decade in relation to domestic work, they often build a relationship with domestic workers thinking that you know, they are offering Western notions of equality and very liberal notions of, of Western equality in these employment relationships. But domestic workers, on the other hand, know they're inferior subjects. And in these very liberal contexts, and this is not Kafala, this is India, uh, there is a high culture of blacklisting and regimes of punishment. So you may have very liberal uh, discourses you'll, and practices a day off, uh, over time, all those kind of things, but you can be blacklisted very arbitrary, in a very arbitrary way. So that, you know, there should be a lot of nuance to the fact that these things just don't happen in the Middle East, like you said. Finally, uh, and, and I'll send you my comments because I have quite a few. Uh, what does it mean to have a good job in the global domestic service sector is one of the questions I leave for you. And um, also, what 
you know, did you find also uh, things like tutoring, uh, nutritional advice, nursing as part of these uh, employment relationships under the kafala? Or was it just this very, you know, was it just everyday domestic work? I'll leave you with some of those questions. Um, yeah, uh, thank you for, for your comments. Um, I mean, who, who like, I'll just uh, comment on the, on the last one. Um, you know, the, I don't think domestic employers have a very high, like, it's not like the domestic workers who you find in Europe from the Philippines or the United States tend to be more educated or Canada. And so they can offer more expertise and like employers rely on them as a skill, you know, somehow, somehow like employers know I'm getting this semi-skilled person for really cheap. Right. So I can get advice, you know, because on them, because they were actually a teacher in the Philippines and now they're um, a domestic worker here in Canada. In contrast, employers, really infantilize their domestic workers in the region and don't think much very highly of them. And if someone is going to um, be educating someone, it's the employer who patronizes the domestic worker, like Stefan was saying, and that this, you know, kind of uh, patronizing paternalism, you know, it goes to, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know, I'm not letting you out of the house because it's for your own good. For your own product. I don't want you to get tempted by an Indian worker out there, or um, like I, you like to eat chips. I'm gonna ban you from eating chips because you know it's bad for your health or your fried pork, you know, or whatever. So yeah, so I feel it's the domestic workers are, are really um, not not you know. So even if they've been a domestic worker for like ten different employers and they're quite old, and there is I think a very you know. You could even say, like, I guess, racialized uh, constitution, you know, con um, perspective of them is very much inferior. Right. OK, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to have to um, thank everybody at this moment. Uh, Rizal, Stephen, Lena, thank you very much for joining us today, for, for accepting this invitation. It's been a fascinating evening here. Um, till next time. Uh, goodbye and um, see you next time and have a lovely uh, week ahead. Thank you very much to all of you who joined across the world. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.